All right, before we get going on this episode, I am going to say, I know I said I was going to read reviews at the end of this episode. I'm probably going to wait till the next one. I want this episode to stand alone because for me and my co-host, it's a pretty important episode, I do believe, and I don't, I don't want to do reviews at the end of this particular one. So I do apologize. I will have a bonus episode out, uh, later in the week. I'm actually interviewing a woman tomorrow for a bonus episode. So, so before we get started, I got to thank new Patreon subscribers, Erica, Jess Huey. I hope that's how you pronounce your last name. I know we're friends on social media, but I'm not sure how to pronounce your last name. So if it's wrong, I do apologize. Robin Gallagher, Jennifer Flanders, Heather Thompson, M22. And uh, this is probably the, the better one. Alex Dixie Normus Wills. <laughs> Uh, thank, thank you for that. Thank you for, uh, for the donations. I, I have got a lot of good feedback about my Sammy the Bull Gravano part one episode on there. Part two will also be coming, uh, here at the end of the week. I do have a bonus Patreon episode coming up, uh, in the next couple days. It is an interview with Sarah Turney. As you know, uh, me and Sarah did an episode last year together and she is a podcaster now. So I wanted to kind of interview her and, you know, find out how that's going for her and talk about her sister's case and stuff like that. So you will have a bonus Patreon episode in between Sammy the Bull Part 1 and Sammy the Bull Part 2. So just so you know, with that being said, I also have to give a huge, huge thank you to Deputy X. As you know, for you longtime listeners, Deputy X came on. Um, we did an AMA and he legit got rifled off two hours worth of questions and told us stories and it was a cool episode. Well, Deputy X, I asked him to come on for this particular episode because this particular episode is about a fallen police officer. And I thought his insight to this case would be extremely beneficial. And I am telling you right now, 110%, his presence on this episode is absolutely key. It is absolutely key. He did a phenomenal job, and I've told him a hundred times, I cannot even thank him enough. So WDX, thank you so much for doing this episode with me. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. I got to thank, I got to give a huge shout out to Tina. Tina is from the area where this crime occurred, where this took place. What she did for us is she hooked us up with the right people in order to get information that is not public knowledge. Now, we do have the right permission for this, and it's very beneficial when looking at this case. So we got a lot of information that was not public knowledge, but I will say we did kind of veer away from some of that information just to try to stay as close as we could to the straight and narrow, even though we did have permission to use this information. With that being said... Thank you so much, Tina, for doing that for us. I know you gathered this information and hooked us up with the right people or hooked me up with the right people uh, over a year ago. And I'm glad that I waited to do this episode because of the presence of my co-host on this episode. So got to give a huge shout out to a guy named Paul Rubin from the Phoenix News. 
I uh, found it. We found it online, phoenixnews.com, phoenixnewstimes.com. Can't remember exactly which, but Paul Rubin wrote two stories about this in November of 2012, and he did a, an amazing job, and it is some of the most detailed public information that you can come across on this on this case. So if you want to check out those articles, I, I highly suggest it. With all that aside, you know, this, this is an interesting case, and I hope you guys pay attention and take some notes. This podcast contains adult content. Some of the themes or topics may include information on murder, kidnapping, torture, dismemberment, maybe some demonic content with information on positions and paranormal activity. This podcast will also include explicit, horrible and foul, socially unacceptable, totally uninhibited, adult themes language. So if you're easily offended, if you're easily triggered, then I highly suggest you turn this off now. And if not, just keep in mind, parental discretion is advised. October 18, 2010, decorated Phoenix Police Sergeant Sean Drenth died on duty in a dirt lot near the state capitol, killed with his own shotgun. His case remains unsolved. Have one of your officers involved in the shooting at 18th Avenue in Jackson? They're staying at the Phoenix officer. There's no suspect information. There's no vehicle information. The information was really sketchy. Yeah, my officer said he's 10 7. I think he's saying he's dead. There is an officer down. It even might be a suicide. We have a, a suicide that is staged to be or made to look like a homicide. Any weapons missing here? A homicide that has been staged to be a suicide. Or we have a homicide that we can't figure out exactly why or how things ended up how they ended up. We got a new the crime scene is etched in my memory. Until they figure out who did this, there's a cop killer out there. There's a killer out there. there. What happened last October in the moments before Sean was shot to death with his own gun? All right, everybody, welcome to Mysterious Circumstances. Today we're going to be talking about the really odd death of Sergeant Sean Drenth from the Phoenix Police Department. And joining me is, once again, Deputy X. Always a pleasure to have you on, and I'm really glad that you were willing to participate in this episode just because I was really eager about some of your insights to this case because, you know, obviously you're more familiar with protocol and... You know, some things might seem fishy to you that don't seem weird to other people and then vice versa. So welcome back, man. How you been? Uh, Good, Justin. Thanks for having me on again. I appreciate the opportunity to come on and discuss this case with you. Things have been good. Good deal, man. Good deal. So uh, you were nice enough to visit the area where Sergeant Drenth was either killed or decided to take his own life. We don't know exactly which one yet. I I posted it in the Facebook group and I'm going to post it when I post this on the uh, actual Facebook page, you know, without giving too much away, what did, had, had you heard of this case beforehand? Were you familiar with it? Briefly, a couple years ago, someone had brought it up, you know, that it was kind of a suspicious 
situation. Never really dived into it too much other than looked at a few articles, you know, New York Times, the local news there in Arizona that posted something about it. But it wasn't until you reached out to me that I actually dived in and took a deeper look at some of this stuff. And, you know, it just so happened to work out that when I was on vacation, I was able to sneak away and stop by there for a few minutes and uh, look the scene over, which definitely puts into perspective some of the things that were uh, talked about. When I saw the video, like picturing it in my mind was a lot different than what you know, I saw on the video that you had and that you sent and were nice enough to share with everybody. And it's just a really odd place. And there's a lot of weird stuff going on here. So it's, I'm, I'm super interested to get your input on this. So we'll go ahead and start with talking about Sean Drenth. When he was about 21 years old, he decided he wanted to be a cop. And from what I understood, he was a really, really good cop. He loved it. He was good at it. And he took extra classes and eventually became a firearms trainer as well within the police department, which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, he was played in a band with uh, one of his buddies, a guy named Contreras. His name will come up again later. And from what I understand, you know, he was married. He had a family. They all say he was a pretty happy guy. He was a funny guy, just nice guy to be around. I'm not sure if you heard anything different about, you know, just his life in general, but pretty much there's not too much, you know, outward information on his his personal life, which I'm okay with, you know? No, there's, there's definitely not. And what we would refer to that as from the law enforcement perspective is you and I were sitting here investigating this, but we're missing one of the key factors, which is the victimology, right? Mm -hmm. We don't have a lot of known victimology about Drent and his personal life and where he actually was in his mental state when this tragic event took place. That's one of those things that would help, you know, the listener or even us might sway our opinion a little bit because as, as I was looking at it, and going through this, man, it's just really 50-50, you know, and, and you had told told me before recording, it's like you you have your opinion. And I was like, don't tell me anything yet. You know, I really want to hear it as the listeners are hearing it, too. So on October 18th at about 2 p.m., Sean Drenth starts his 10-hour shift. Uh, the first one of the first things he did was he went to visit one of his friends guy by the last name of Lentz, who was also a cop. He was working security at a homeless shelter at the time, and he couldn't really visit for too long because he gets a what's referred to as a barricade call. From what I understand, it's something, you know, somebody had barricaded themselves in a house, kind of a sketchy situation. Are you familiar with those? Yeah, I mean, if it's like what we would have up here, you know, either pursuit in at a residence and the suspect runs inside or you go to the residence for another situation and it turns into a barricade type deal because the suspect or person of interest goes and locks himself either in a back bedroom 
or just in the house in general. I mean, even on like trying to serve a warrant for an arrest, you could run into this where they would just barricade themselves in and then you're switching tactics from just trying to pull them out to now we need to negotiate them out and try to bring this escalation of force down to a minimum. Yeah, that would uh, that would definitely set the shift off on <laughs> the hectic foot, you know, especially if that's one of your first calls right out of the right out of the gate. So, yeah, I could I could see that being the case. And uh, Sean Durant did answer the call. You know, between 2 p.m. and 8.50 p.m., we really don't know much about his day. I didn't really hear too much about anything else. But at 8.50 p.m., Sean comes back to hang out with his buddy, Lentz, and he is there for approximately 40 minutes. And Lentz would later go on to say he seemed in a really good mood. He was um, pretty upbeat and just happy, like always, that he's being his normal self. Sergeant Drenth goes to leave at 9.30 p.m. And at 9.59 p.m., he calls his wife, who was apparently going to the grocery store. He talks to his wife. She states that it was a pretty normal conversation, nothing out of the ordinary. And then at about 10.25 p.m., uh, security camera footage catches him while he's in his car and he's going into like a V-shaped alleyway and it's, you know, the alleyway is two chain link fences, like I said, in a V-shape. One of the things that struck me as odd was that he pulls straight in as opposed to backing in into that area because you would think, you know, if somebody backs in, you know, they can see in front of them. They can do whatever they got to do. And what is your opinion on that? So I found that really odd when I was reading over some of this stuff that me personally, if I'm going to back my patrol car in anywhere, I'm going to back it in. First off, one, for ease of visibility, I can see what's coming into me in a, in a cornered situation. And two... So I can get out quickly because everybody knows going in drive and just going forward is a lot easier than trying to back out and manipulate some kind of turn. What I realized when I went down there and saw the location and I actually was able to do it in my personal vehicle, you can pull in and you can make a circle and you can pull out where your nose is facing the road. So it actually wouldn't surprise me that if I'm not mistaken, he had a Crown Vic at the time of his death? I believe so, yeah. I believe so. I mean, I remember seeing a lot of them in the photos from news articles, but I know that, that Phoenix Police Department runs Tahoe's, and they had a bunch of Crown Vics still running around on the street when I was down there just recently. I didn't see any other types of uh, Phoenix PD vehicles, so either one of those would have been real easy to pull in and make a U-turn because the width of that alleyway is substantial enough to do so. If you were to pull too far into that back corner, you'd, you'd get pinned in back down there, but it's big enough to pull in and make a U-turn. So even if he does pull in forward, if he 
if as long as he doesn't pull in too far, he can actually just do a quick U-turn as opposed to backing out and then putting it in drive, you know, to get out of that, you know, V-shape is what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So okay. there's two trees. There's the one where body was found closer to, and then there was one which was substantially larger, like kind of right in the middle of the whole thing. And so if you just pull in tight to the fence on one side and you go past that first tree, cut it hard to the right or left, whichever way you're coming in, you're going to be nose facing the road again, doing a U-turn real easy, you know, no over manipulating it, just real simple U-turn and your nose is facing back out to the main road. Okay. And I'm, I'm glad you clarified that because the descriptions in a lot of like various, you know, news articles or even news reports that you see on, on YouTube from various news outlets at the time, they don't really go into too much detail on that. They always talk about, well, it's really suspicious that he didn't back in, but at the same time, it's interesting knowing that that V is actually big enough to where you can pull in nose first and still be able to maneuver out fairly easily. So it's still, I mean, do you still find it odd that he didn't back in? No, no, no. I, I did until I saw it in person. Okay. And then I thought to myself, oh, yeah, I know why he didn't back in at first. Me in that situation, one, you got to be really familiar with the place. It took me 45 minutes to find it. The address takes you to a main street on the front side of a business and this little alleyway is actually inside state property and there's signs posted everywhere you know arizona dot employees only so there's the dot yard which you see in the news clippings and that's if i'm not mistaken where the capitol police you see in one news clipping they're inside the fence with other vehicles and he makes like a round through the parking lot mm-hmm. but so this is all inside state property on the other side where the railroad tracks is actually federal property because the railroads, that's a whole nother topic. But so basically railroads, federal property and the Arizona DOT yard and then other Arizona state buildings all down inside this little cul-de-sac like area. So me personally, as a deputy, it's a beautiful spot to hide cars passing up and down on the main roads. They're not going to see you back there. So you pull in, you make a U-turn, your nose is facing out, you throw it in park, catch up on your reports, take a break, whatever you need to do. You know, I wouldn't suggest napping in a spot like that because it's still open. But, you know, (laughs) it's a good spot to hide and just kick back for a minute, catch up on a report, whatever you need to do. It's all on state property. So if anybody's there that you might run into in the middle of the night, they're probably trespassing anyway you know if it was like homeless person or something cutting through the parking lot like that's what i found really weird about when they talk about it on the news you think it's just some back alley between two buildings and it's not it's state property surrounded by very tall two and three story buildings and then there's some a little further away much taller i don't even know how many story buildings It's not visible from any main thoroughfare where there would be normal traffic. With the evidence and stuff, they didn't really report any. As we're going to get further along, the the crime scene 
shortly after the death is what's described as absolute chaos. But would that spot be big enough for two patrol cars to kind of pull in together, maybe driver side to driver side to talk? Because I see a lot of cops doing that. You know, you go you go to the gas station or something and there's, you know, a couple cops just hanging out there for a minute talking and they're pulled in opposite of each other, you know, driver side to driver side talking. Would there be sufficient room, you know, for that to possibly be a scenario or like another vehicle? Totally. Closer to the road, you could probably fit eight cars side by side like that. Wow. Wow. All right. You know, and then it necks down and it comes to a, an actual point like a triangle, you know, but even in that back spot where the body and the other tree and the memorial site that they put up, you could still fit two cars all the way back there in that back part of it. All right. That's good. That's good information to know because sometime between, between 1025 PM and 1056 PM, something happens. A security guard nearby hears a call about an officer not responding. Now he's just pretty much a regular, from what I understand, unarmed security guard. His name is in papers everywhere. It's it's not really important at, at this time, but he would often listen to the police scanner, just kind of see what's going on. And he was, like I said, close enough by that he goes to check it out. And at 10.56 p.m., he pulls his car up behind Sergeant Drent's car. And he says that the car is still running. Both doors are open, the driver's side and the passenger side door, and the lights are off. He gets out of the car and he calls out, you know, hello, hello, is anybody there? Doesn't get any response. And then he sees Sergeant Drent's body on the ground beside the patrol car. And he only has a flashlight and it's dark out at this point. And he says what, you know, could possibly be blood. So he calls the Phoenix Police Department, tells them that a cop has been shot. Now, if you, as another police officer, if you pulled up to that scenario, what would your initial thoughts be? Well, I can tell you the first thing that's going to happen, my gun's coming out because you don't, you don't know what the hell's going on, right? And mm-hmm. it's weird enough that he's pulled in, lights out, both doors open, because that's but we don't do that, you know? You pull mm-hmm. in, you black out, you know, hang out with both doors open. And if my door's open, my lights aren't off because that means headlights, specifically we're talking headlights here. Headlights, yes. headlights you know, yes. um, not the overhead lights. But if my door's open, my headlights aren't off because I want to be visible while I'm out of the vehicle. You know, unless I'm doing some secret squirrel buy stuff, which you know, is far and few between, but I don't want to not be seen. So that right there is suspicious. And then I walk up, I see blood. I'm getting on the radio and I'm calling for everybody. Putting out the full, uh, we call it a 1078, officer needs assistance call, you know. I want everybody there. I don't want to be hanging out by myself with this guy bleeding out or already dead or whatever's going on. Even if he'd only been shot and still breathing, I don't want to be the only one there. 
So I, I think this security guard did the best in the situation from what I've read and understand to his abilities. Definitely. I you mean, know, somebody with no, with no training whatsoever, man, I think I, I'll agree with you right there, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's definitely a hair on the back of the neck. Like just, just pulling in and seeing the car that way. Let's say you don't even see the person laying on the ground yet. You just see the car. That's red flag right there. Boom. Especially with the what passenger happened? door open. Yeah. That's, that's really, really odd, man. Now let me ask you this. When you're, let's say we have a scenario where I'm going to play the criminal and if I'm going to, you know, sneak up behind a police car for whatever reason, I, I honestly would have to say that I would sneak to the passenger side as opposed to the driver's side. If I was coming up behind this car, just because of the fact, I think I would have a better chance and you got, we got to think this is, October in Phoenix, around 11 p.m., you know, it's nighttime. You know, maybe Sergeant Drenth had his windows down already. Uh, I didn't actually read anything about whether or not the windows were up or down, but I would want to sneak up to the passenger side just because I know there's like a 95% chance that if I can get that passenger side door open, you're going to be able to hop in real quick not specifically like pull his gun out of his holster, but you have his firing arm right there, you know, right-handed, you know, there's a 95% chance I'd say. And I mean, that would kind of make sense, but if you're parked in a, in a scenario like that, let's say, even if your windows are down, would, would you still have the doors locked or would they, do you think they'd be unlocked or anything like that? Well, with the windows down, I keep doors locked, but I can tell you right now, you're gonna you're gonna be hard pressed to sneak up on my passenger side because the mirror looks right down the passenger side of the vehicle. So it's once you're out from behind the vehicle, you're gonna be in in the view of the mirror where I can see you from the driver's seat. Even if the you're approaching from like a blind spot. Yeah, I keep my mirror set where I can literally see down the side of the patrol vehicle. So until you get close enough to the front door, which I'm gonna be able to see you out of the peripheral because that's the only blind spot is just right there in the that front front corner of the mirror in the driver's door or passenger door once you're past the b pillar you mm-hmm. know which is that post in between the front door and the rear door once you're there I'll, I'll be able to see you with peripherals unless you're low crouching but even then if you're low crouching and i got my windows down i probably I'm going to be able to hear you because you don't want to be jamming the music so loud you can't hear somebody coming, right? So, <laughs> yeah. It, it's all it's in that situation. It's all about tactics, right? What do I need to be prepared for? And in today's society, we see a lot of this ambush scenario where cops are going and parking somewhere, and then they're getting ambushed. So me personally, I look at it like. I need to be prepared, so radio's down low where I can just barely hear it. Windows are down, doors are locked, mirrors are adjusted where I can see the sides of my vehicle as best as possible. That's the nice thing about these newer patrol cars. They have that split view mirror in them, so you see your overall view, and then you have that little like blind spot mirror that's underneath the bottom of them. So 
especially on the trucks, like the Ford trucks that we use for our department. They have uh, they have two mirrors inside the one mirror. So oh, you have okay. two lenses that you can see from. Even in an old Crown Vic, man, in a low seat, like I've driven one of those, and if your mirrors are positioned correctly where you can see the taillight, you're going to be able to see anybody coming up that side. The okay. driver's side is a lot harder to do because you sit closer to the mirror so the angle is different. It's not impossible, uh, but it is it is different. That makes sense, so, and I'm glad you said that because I was thinking the exact opposite. Yeah, and see, and some some guys, they keep their passenger side mirror adjusted out further for better visual on traffic, but I can look out the passenger side over my shoulder and see if there's somebody next to me, and I can look two or three lanes and see. So I want that mirror where I can look down the side of my truck, you know, especially if I'm sitting at a light or something. I want to be able to look down the side of the truck, and I want to be able to see your license plate behind me. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. the car next to me in the in the second lane, I want to see their license plate. No, it makes total sense. So when all these cops show up to the scene, from what I understand, there were over 100 cops that answered the call, and there were over 50 total on the scene. The f- first three main ones that we're going to talk about are Clark, Lentz, and Swick. Lentz, the first thing he does when he comes up, he was one of the very, like I said, one of the very first three, and he's a friend. So he comes in. And he hits the computer screen on the car and he notices that the suspect screen was pulled up, but there was nothing ever filled out on it. Now he turns the car off, pulls the keys out and goes and checks the trunk. Now Clark, he's the first one supposedly to come across the body. And he uh, then it was Lance and then it was Swick after that. Now Clark says, initially that this doesn't look right because what they find is Drenth is laying flat on his back with his legs straight out and he has the shotgun across his chest barrel toward his head and his service pistol was that later found it was thrown over one of those fences and it was a, a Glock I believe And Mm -hmm. he looks at, uh, you know, he says it doesn't look right because of the shotgun, the position of the shotgun across his chest. And the first thing he says is this looks staged. You know, there's this isn't right. And he does have a good point because initially they're thinking suicide, not to, you know, get too gruesome on anybody, but this is very relevant. The brain matter from the shotgun blast wasn't behind him. It was behind and up in a tree, roughly, I believe, 10 to 12 feet away. Now, given that scenario, you know, how is this shotgun going to be positioned perfectly across his chest like that with the barrel up? It doesn't make a lot of sense, but... It's weird because in statements, Lentz and Swick actually say that the shotgun was barreled down across the chest, which is different than the initial report, which is, is, is pretty intriguing. And then another thing that we do have to point out, this is, you know, some of the evidence. 
there were no fingerprints on the shotgun or no usable fingerprints. I did read that in, in one article. Now, I will say this from a couple of cases that I did look into, depending on the oil on your fingers or on the shotgun, possibly a recoil from a blast or the recoil from a blast of a shotgun could render you know, prints unusable or could, you know, leave a few smudges, but nothing that they could actually confirm. So the next thing that is weird is the, his handcuffs and flashlight were laying on the ground next to the body. There was dirt on his chest. There were signs of a struggle on the ground and his knuckles were scraped up. Now his backup revolver, which he kept around his ankle was on the ground beside him and it had been fired once and it had been fired through the fence into one of the warehouse walls on the other side of the fence. And from what I understand, it was in the same direction as the shotgun blast. Now a homeless guy nearby does come forward and says he heard two shots within 15 seconds of one another. The first one was a very loud one. The second one was a muffled one. But he also says that he didn't hear any voices whatsoever. So, first of all, I'd like to get your opinion on all of these cops trampling around this scene, dude. What is the deal with that? You know, and then obviously I'd love to hear your opinion on on some of the evidence. You know, and I mean, there's more evidence to go through here, like, there was a footprint on the passenger side floor of the car that could not be tied to anybody's who was on the scene, anybody's boot print specifically. There were over 90 fingerprints on the scene and there was DNA found on the scene as well. Before we get into the initial ruling, I would love to get your opinion on some of that and the officers on the scene and the fact that the scene was obviously muddied, man. Um, and then some of the evidence. What do you think about some of that? Well, and see, <laughs> this is this is the beautiful part about it, right? So I read a lot of public release information from New York Times. The Phoenix one was called uh, PhoenixNewTimes.com. Mm-hmm. And their articles contradict each other. Media reports, right? And then the information that you shared with me, from the ME's report where they Mm -hmm. discuss initial report findings and things like that in the the ME's papers. And it contradicts some of the stuff that I found. So in all of the scenarios, in all the reports, one of his weapons, service pistols, whether it was his backup or his duty pistol, one of those two had been fired for sure. I believe the ME's report states that Phoenix PD listed the 45 caliber duty pistol as the one that had been fired okay, and the one yeah. that had also been thrown over the fence and that his backup pistol was just found laying there. And, and I do got to thank, I do got to thank my anonymous friend in Phoenix who literally hooked me up with the, with the medical medical examiner's report. A lot of the autopsy findings, um, she went above and beyond on that one, and I greatly, greatly appreciate it. It gave a lot more information than 
public yeah. than, than what's public. And some, and some very legitimate, <clears throat> detailed information that you can't find on the internet. So Yes. Yes. Big, big shout out to your anonymous source there. Thank <laughs> you very much for that. Um, we both appreciate it. Very much. So, but um, regardless of which pistol had actually been fired, you have one that's been fired and one that's been thrown over the fence, which in a struggle, pull your service pistol out. And if I'm not mistaken, Sean was actually left-handed. Was he? Uh, okay. I believe so because I was reading the medical examiner's report and when they're discussing the crime scene photos, it says that his left hand was laying underneath or on top of his empty holster and his right hand was resting on his taser. The only way that that would make sense is if he was left-handed. Now, I could have read it wrong because I'm trying to find it right now as we're talking about it. But So on, on his left ankle for sure was his empty backup revolver holster. And then it says here the yellow taser in carry holster and mounted for cross draw was under his left hand. So no, he would have been right-handed then because cross draw, that's how I carry my taser actually is on my left side, but it's for right-hand draw. So I reach over cross draw, cross body, you know, and I'm able to pull that. And if his left hand was resting on it while he's laying down, then he would have been right-handed, which makes sense to have your backup gun on your left ankle because you want your limbs to cross over instead of trying to reach down the same side. I, I don't know how many people have ever experimented in this type stuff, but anybody that's done like any kind of jujitsu grappling or works in this industry or in military industry, they would understand that you, if it's on your ankle, you're going to want it opposite of your firing hand because you want to be able to reach it easier. And it's much easier to bring your leg to your right hand than it is to bring your right leg to your right hand. Especially if you're in a grappling situation, like it's just, I don't know. (laughs) The way that works, body fundamentals, it just, it works. But the bullet fired was like a 90 degree angle from the way his body was facing when found. So it's hard to say what position he was in when that was fired, what he was shooting at, if he was even shooting at somebody. And then the position of the shotgun, up or down, makes absolutely no sense where it was in relation to where the body was found. I've actually looked over some of our case files on suicide by shotgun and went and looked at some of the photos from those scenes, and it just seems completely improbable that the gun would still be laying in the center of his chest and the brain matter was not found directly beyond his head right there on the ground. So that was big red flag for me. Let's talk about the 50-plus officers trampling around the crime scene. Yeah, that one really aggravated. I'm not even a cop, and that aggravated me, man. I was like, what are you you guys are are trained professionals. Like, you guys do this every day, you know? Yeah. And how many supervisors were there that night, right? I mean, oh God! if we're talking, there was over 100 on duty or 100 that showed up and 50 on in the actual scene. How many supervisors were there? How many, <laughs> more, how many more people than were one. like, hey, let's just keep tromping around and ruining any evidence we might find. And it just, that aggravated me so bad. Like, 
blood boiling, right? I mean, granted, in that situation, I'm responding to an officer down, and your adrenaline's high, your emotions are involved because this isn't just a coworker anymore. This is your brother, your sister. You know, you bleed with these guys, you train with these guys and gals. I'm not trying to cut anybody out here, but so yeah, the emotion's gonna be involved and you're gonna wanna be in the middle of it. But at some point, a supervisor needed to step up and say, hey, if you're irrelevant to this, back up. Let's establish a perimeter. Let's secure the scene. Let's start working this from front to rear and rear to front because we have the unidentified footprint. From what I read on the New York Times and the FedAgent.com was that there was an unknown DNA source, right? Well, you got over you got over 50 people on there. Well, maybe it was known, but it was unknown because the amount of personnel you had to weed through. Because now you just, you took your crime scene and now you got to weed through all of those officers that were on scene plus trying to look for suspects involved in this. And it's like, whoa, whoa, people, come on. I know you just lost a brother in uniform there, but somebody at some point needed to pull their head out of their butt and put their foot down and minimize this contamination. Just way too many people there. Yeah, it really was, man. I was I was surprised when I was when I was reading about that. Just I mean, so many trained professionals and like you had said, you know, I can understand emotion taking over, but like again, like you had said, at, at a certain point somebody has to say, "Listen, enough with this. We need to block this off." But it just didn't happen. And, and another thing with the DNA because the the detective that was assigned to the case initially said suicide and he he also stated that it was odd because usually they would do it off duty you know not on duty but all the scenarios i guess pointed more towards suicide than murder but when they go to collect some dna from all of these people who were on the scene because they're trying to cancel everybody out there were five cops who refused to submit dna and then there were three of them who sued and mm-hmm. said that after their DNA was tested, they wanted it to be destroyed and not kept on file. I can understand that one, but why would there be cops that would refuse to give D- submit DNA? Is it a is it that big of a deal in the police department that cops have their DNA on file? Well, this is my theory on that. Okay, <laughs> one. The standard in which I try to live by in this profession is that I need to be above reproach. My personal life, my work life, me going down to the grocery store, I need to be above reproach because I'm in a position where you should be held to a higher standard. You're serving the public. You're in the public's eye. And I don't think that it's unconstitutional or any kind of right violation like those officers stated to have my DNA on file. I work for the agency. The agency has policies and procedures to prevent that information from being public record. So I could understand their concern with, hey, I want it destroyed after the fact. Like you took it, you tested it. I 
I want it off the record because there has been times in other agencies in larger cities where officers personal information hits public records and then once it's public record anybody can get a hold of it and then lawsuits come about or oh my god this was your child 25 years ago like I could I could understand depending on the type of personal life they may have not wanting their DNA on file okay not here to judge those officers for that but just refusing to submit it it's like come on dude what like what are you trying to hide that's big red flag right there what are you trying to hide that you don't want your DNA tested to eliminate you from the death of a fellow officer. Yeah. Right. We're not talking like Joe Schmo down the street robbed the seven eleven. We're talking a fellow officer and you are throwing a fit and getting a lawyer because you don't want to submit DNA. Uh, mm-hmm. Hey, you know what? I'll be first in line. Swab me, pull a blood sample. I'll even give you a stool sample if you want, you know? Yeah. Because and and it also bring it also makes you wonder too, like maybe some of these cops were like, Well, maybe their DNA is gonna fuck match something else, you know? Yeah, exactly. And that goes back to that living above reproach, right? If you don't have anything to hide, then you shouldn't have to worry about something like this. So I don't know anything about those those five that were being that way about it, but from my perspective, what I see, I'd be going back internal affairs and investigating those five officers and trying to find out as much as I could about their work life that they threw a fit over DNA for the death of a fellow officer. Like that would just, that would spur me into bloodhounds. Like I'm going to track this down and, <laughs> and run it till it's dry. Like I said, it's a fellow officer. They were throwing a fit about Joe Schmo at 7-Eleven. Okay, whatever. I, I get it. But we need this for your fellow officer. Totally different. And what do you think? What What do you think about that unidentified boot print on the passenger side floorboard of the car as well? That tells me that somebody was in his vehicle, either knew what they were doing in order to pull up the pedestrian stop screen, right? or Mm -hmm. delete information, or whatever. They were in there, they sat on the seat, they put their foot down on the floorboard. I mean, I'd love to see which footprint it was, right? Was it Uh, right or left? Was it toe in? Was it just resting on the floorboard? I mean, there's a lot of, I'd like to know what it was, right? And let's take a step back here. He went to visit his friend down at the, uh, the housing complex, right? Did they test that guy's shoes? Did that guy go and change his shoes at some point? When three women disappear in Santa Ana, California, without a trace, it takes a very bold and unwavering detective to seek out justice. Detective Jalissa Trapp has always wanted to be a cop. And she is, but she is definitely not like other cops. Not only is she the only woman on an otherwise all-male homicide squad, but she does her job in ways that some might view as a little bit unconventional. In a brand new podcast from Wandery and the Los Angeles Times, Detective Trapp takes you into the life of a cop who conducts herself relentlessly. 
It's hosted by award-winning journalist Chris Gofford. Detective Trap is the story of a detective who fights through her own personal struggles and society's indifference to bring a serial killer to justice. What is Trap's strongest resource for catching dangerous criminals? It's her personal experience. While listening, make sure to subscribe to Detective Trap on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. You can also find the link in the episode notes underneath the episode description. So go subscribe to Detective Trap now. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You, you had brought up uh, before recording, too, that there's a lot of homeless people right around that area, correct? There was several in that general area. And what I found interesting when I was trying to find the location, it takes you to like this industrial building on the main street and I got to looking around, you know, and I'm like, I'm like, okay, it's gotta be right here somewhere. There's the Arizona DOT building. There's the silver fence and the railroad track. Like it's gotta be on the other side of this wall. And that's why I can't find it. Right. Like it's taking you to the main street, but the crime scene's behind this wall. So we made our way around and we found it. But right there, where the railroad tracks come out from where Sergeant Drenz was killed or suicide, right? And we go mm-hmm. out to the main road, there's a little homeless camp. Like these two bums with their tent and their shopping carts, and they're camped out right there by the road and the railroad tracks between the DOT building and the industrial building where the bullet went through the fence, which is actually a mechanic's yard. So if they had tried, I don't know, but I'm sure they could have recovered the bullet somewhere over there because there's plenty of stuff to catch it, you know? So in, in theory, it could be a possibility that even after Sergeant Drenth was killed or decided to take his own life, that may, might be a slim chance, but maybe any homeless people that heard the shots could have possibly shown up on the scene, you know, maybe tried to get something of value out of the car or anything like that. Like it's, it's a slim chance and I'm just kind of throwing it out there, but just because of the fact it was an unidentified boot print. I mean, do you think that might be a possibility? I would consider that a possibility based on all of the videos I could find from the news reviews. Because when I went on location and saw the scene, the fence along the railroad tracks had been redone compared to all the news articles that I watched. They're two different fences. They're both chain link with barbed wire, but you can tell at some point that that fence had been redone. And from every angle in the news film that I could find, it's possible that 
you could slip under that fence. You know, maybe the homeless people had been doing it for a while, mm-hmm. slipping under the fence, cutting through the DOT yard. And then when all the workers show up in the morning, they leave again through the fence and go hide out on the railroad track. Because I don't think that track was actually in service. I couldn't find anything to solidify that or not, but there was definitely some overgrowth of vegetation and stuff that made it, it appear to me that it's probably not in service. Because we have some tracks around here that aren't in service, and you can tell. The ones that get used regularly versus the ones that don't ever get used. So the vegetation grows up through the rock and all that kind of stuff. So that's a plausible theory. But what were they doing in the vehicle, right? You know, exactly. What are they looking for inside the vehicle? Nah, you know, it'd be hard telling. I I don't know, maybe try to take the laptop or something or I don't know, anything worth a dollar. It's it's hard telling. Well, it was it, it I I was just thinking about that when you had when you had mentioned the you know that there were quite a few homeless people around the area and it's it's like, well, it was nine years ago. You know, it could have been a worse area, could have been a better area back then. I really don't think it was a better area, but no, you know, it was just an idea. Well, I'll tell you on my on my drive up from the highway where we exited to downtown to where the location was. There's some shady houses down in there, you know, kind of that ghetto barrio type cars on jack stands in the front yard and not not well kept houses. So it it, you, it makes you wonder. Why would you even go there to hide in the first place? Yeah, that's honestly one of another one of my questions. It's like, what's he doing there in the first place? The only thing I could think is that it's secluded. It's on state property. You turn in on a side road off of main road and you go down and you're in the back corner of this parking lot. You have a wide open view. If you're parked facing out, you can see the other parking lot. And then you have the Mm -hmm. DOT yard, which is completely fenced in next to you. So it's not like you'd be real noticeable down in there. The only element of surprise that I could see if you're facing out towards the building is someone coming from the railroad tracks. But then you still have that other fence over there that they'd have to get over. So, And I don't know... From where this building is in relation to where, like, a substation or a headquarters building for them is, because I didn't look that far into it. I just, when I got down in there, I was like, oh, yeah, I could see coming here to hide. It's state property. There's lots of security cameras up all over the place. Your regular Joe Schmo is not going to be driving around back here at 11 o'clock at night. Unless you have anything to add, I was going to talk about one of the possible motives for a suicide. Sergeant Drenth and two other officers, Contreras and Lentz, were going to be indicted for theft or embezzlement. They did side work, you know, security jobs for side jobs because, well, our uh, civil servants are grossly underpaid. It's it's not out of the ordinary. <laughs> it really is, dude. They, uh, between a uh, you know, teachers and cops and firefighters, they they deserve more money than half the people who make good money, you know. So it's not out of the ordinary that a lot of them do work side jobs, usually security, because it's an easy gig for them to get. 
you know, they already have more experience than any Joe Schmo they're going to hire off the street for a security gig. It sounds a lot worse than what it was. Apparently, these three guys were accused of ripping off the company that they worked for a little bit over a thousand dollars. And basically what it was, from my understanding, is that they were, you know, saying they were working when they really weren't. And I mean, I don't know. I believe it was a total of a thousand dollars. But Contreras was was the main guy that, you know, this company was was looking at basically this the main guy of the indictment. But the other two were included because apparently they had done the same thing, just not as much. Now, a security job, honestly, for a company to straight up indict three cops for theft or embezzlement over a matter of a thousand dollars seems a little bit dramatic. You know, it's like, just pay the freaking money back, man. You know, I, I don't know why you would want to pay lawyer costs, you know, pay court costs, do whatever you have to do to, to literally indict three people over the, for, for a thousand dollars. People look at that as one of the motives for the suicide. And uh, Contreras actually was very, very vocal about this being a murder case. And it, and it should be noted, too, that when he was questioned about it, he would say, you know, I'm positive he was murdered. He did not kill himself. And then he had offhand mentioned something about all those cops are corrupt it would have taken more than one person to take out Sean Drenth because Drenth was recognized as a very good cop, you know, on point. He was skilled. He, he was very, yeah, exactly. Very skilled. I mean, he was a firearms trainer. He had taken all the extra classes. Like, he was in it to win it. So here's the weird thing. Right before the investigation, Contreras announced his retirement after being, a, you know, a 17-year veteran of the police force. When when a cop says something offhand about all those cops are corrupt, it would have taken more than one person. That just kind of stuck with me right there, man. Because as as I've found out from covering various cases, you know, a couple of them out of out of the Phoenix area, the Phoenix Police Department does not have the best reputation. <laughs> okay, over the course of the last 15, 20 years. So no, they do not. Yeah. So for me to hear something like that or to, or to read something like that, I should say, it's like, you know what? I I can believe that. So I guess that would raise the question. And along with the suicide theory here, before we go any further, why would he do it on duty and why would he stage it to look like a murder? And from it's my understanding that if a police officer is killed on duty, the win, the widow gets full benefits. They get like a like a, a lump sum, and then I believe you know anywhere from three to five years salary. Now, if it's a police officer who commits suicide on the job, they are entitled to absolutely nothing. So. If Drenth did kill himself and stage it look like, you know, stage it to look like a suicide, first of all, why? Why did he want to kill himself? Because these cops honestly didn't take this indictment very seriously because it was over a thousand dollars, you know. And don't get me wrong, it probably he, he might have lost his job over it, 
maybe that was starting to sink in. But at the same time, man, the fact that, like you had mentioned earlier, somebody was in the passenger seat who more than likely knew what they were doing. So I don't know, man. I'm just not down with the suicide theory to be per. I don't think that's no. enough motive. I don't think that's enough motive no. at all. No, no. I mean, it just recapping on the interviews that his wife did with the news, mm-hmm. like listening to her talk about him and their life and those aspects that you see from the filmed live interviews with her. I highly, 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 highly doubt there was any reason to commit suicide over this. Let's, let's talk about the indictment a little bit, right? Yeah. Yeah. So this indictment, Contreras, if I'm not mistaken, resigned in 2009, took an early retirement, whatever he did. Mm-hmm. And then if I'm not mistaken, him and Sean kind of played guitar together once in a while or something like that. Yeah, they he was the other he was the friend that was in the band with him. Yeah. He makes some very bold statements about you know, he was murdered, which I'm leaning towards the side that he was murdered. And Same. everything that I could dig up and read on Sergeant Trent is he was the do right officer, even if it meant getting reprimanded for doing something wrong. He was always going to stand up and do what was right and tell the truth. And he was going to own it, man. He was going to own it and just get it behind him. He was going to own up to it, right? Now, granted, this indictment, we're talking 1,000, I think 62 is what I read the official number was. That's felony charges. You're looking at potential prison time. Mm -hmm. You're looking at complete loss of your job your pension and anything revolving around you being a police officer gone 12 years vested out the window in the blink of an eye. Right. What I find interesting about this indictment though, was after his death, the indictment basically just disappeared. So I know that I read in one article that it went to, a judge, the judge kind of scoffed it off, laughed at it, and kicked it back to a grand jury for <laughs> review. And that yep. was the last thing I could find on it. Same, same with right? me. So then it it goes back to the security contract. Were they being contracted directly from the police department? Or was it a side business? Because I think Contreras actually like set this up like a side business. Yep. They were doing these contracts. But, like, we do security contracts occasionally up here where I'm at, and when we do them, we're actually contracted through the agency that I work for by the company that's requesting us. Which makes sense. You, so, you, have, the, you have the middle person security company that goes out and finds the jobs and then, you know, gets you guys like, hey, you want to work this? Kind of like that. Like when we do them, we do them in full uniform like we would patrol. Oh, for sure, yeah. So, you know, it's like... It's more of a presence. Yeah, and I think the Walmart one's the only one where we actually get paid by Walmart instead of by our agency. So for them to be stealing time from this business that Contreras had secured or was his or whatever the situation may be, 
for someone to bring them up on charges, to me, it sounds like it was an internal thing, which it's really hard to figure out where they were stealing the time from because there's not a lot of clear cut whether they were stealing it from the police department, leaving early to go to their second job, or if they were getting late to their second job, but claiming they were there the whole time from that business. So there's a lot of that that's still wrapped in mystery, you know, but still, suicide is plausible if you're looking at felony charges, prison time, because cops don't do well in prison. I mean, it's solitary confinement and it's just not, yeah. Well, and with that being said, Knowing that Drenth was the the do right officer, you know, if he did get questioned, you know, that also might bring up a motive for murder because maybe that, he's going to divulge more information about something else or some other guy or something of that matter to where it would be an internal thing. And the way this crime scene is, there's not too many thugs, random thugs out on the street who are going to be able to accomplish something like this, you know, no. and I'm, I'm not saying one way or another, who did it, who did what or anything, but looking at it that way, I guess to me personally, that's a motive for murder. That's another thing that I find highly suspicious, right? One of the fellow officers that was involved in the indictment was one of the first to respond to the scene. He wasn't even on duty that night. He was working the contract gig. Exactly. Yep. So that raises the little red flag again. And I'm not saying he did anything, but definitely a suspicious avenue. Yes. Totally agree. This indictment. Let's say that Sergeant Drent was going to take his own life, stage it to look like he'd been jumped. They bested him in the alley so that his wife would receive benefits that would not be there if he just committed suicide. There's two huge flaws with that. One, we have the position of the shotgun. Find that totally, totally, totally. It's wrong. It's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Number two, I don't think he would have done this on duty in the first place. Right? Because now he's tying up his fellow officers, cleaning up his mess. If he was going to stage something elaborate, and granted, the payout's probably a lot better because it happened on duty, but I still don't think, I mean, everything I can read about his character, I don't think he would have done it on duty regardless of how it was going to go down. What I do think is that he had information that disappeared with his death, and that's why the indictment disappeared. That's pretty much exactly where I'm at, too, because when I found out that after he died, the indictment just kind of disappeared and nothing ever came of it. I was like, well, the three officers between them, you know, really weren't taking it seriously. But I guess that doesn't mean that maybe some other officers involved or, you know, who worked for the same security company or something like wouldn't have taken it as lightly, I guess you could say. Let's talk what known victimology we do have here, right? Let's talk about the other officers involved in the indictment. If you're looking at felony charges for this, and let's say you're five, six years in instead of 12, let's say you're 18 years in, 
you're throwing everything out the window if this goes to court and has any validity to it you're done which is really good means for murder let's silence the one guy that'll tell the truth we'll get our stories collaborating with each other and we'll shut this thing down that's where my theory comes from right we'll take a second here and i'll tell you my theory right sean talked to his wife that night and then he went to his little spot either to catch up on some reports or just take a minute, kick back, enjoy peace and quiet for a few minutes, maybe to meet with somebody else from the department or whatever. I wonder what time, I wonder what time Lentz got off work. I don't know. know. They had met just before he went to this spot. I mean, what what was it? Maybe 45 minutes from the time he left Lentz to when his body was found. It was roughly like 30 to 40 minutes. Yeah. And anybody on the department probably knew where that spot was at. And interesting fun fact here, if you know how to use those mobile computers that are in the vehicle, you can actually track other officers' locations on those. Almost every single one that I've ever interacted with, they have GPS in them. You can actually pull up, and if you know the officer's call sign or their computer number or whatever, it'll show their marker for their location and where they're at. So my theory, this is where it kind of leans towards the two persons of interest, right? He pulls in. He sees somebody he doesn't recognize at first because I believe there was some kind of radio traffic or something that there was a suspicious person. He was going to check it out. And then there was the screen pulled up on his computer, right? So he pulls in, gets out to interact with this person, and then realizes, oh, it's so-and-so. I know this guy. And, hey, what are you doing down here? This is kind of weird, right? Things go south. Mm -hmm. There's a scuffle that ensues. Second person that he didn't see coming into his hiding spot was hiding out of the way somewhere and sneaks up grabs his shotgun out of the passenger seat and it's the jump on him, right? But then this is where it gets interesting because we're talking about the gunshot wound and these other things, right? So if I'm standing next to a person and I take my shotgun and instead of shouldering it, I hold it at more of a like a low ready position where it's the buttstock's closer to my hip and I just tip the barrel up and shove it under your chin, one, you're probably going to stop fighting because, holy crap, there's a gun in my face. Two, it would explain the trajectory of brain matter in the tree 10 to 12 feet to the northeast of his body. So the Mm -hmm. shotgun was angled weird and shot at contact range, which means if it's contacting you, All I got to do is push back a little bit and your chin's going to tip your head back. So person number two removes the shotgun from the patrol vehicle, gets the jump on him, shoots him in that weird position where the buttstock's at the hip and the barrel shoved into his chin. And then he falls down flat on his back, which would also indicate, you know, where his body was laying with his feet flat out from underneath him. And then the shotgun being dropped on top of him as they walked away. 
So my theory is that there were two people with equal or exceeding training in use of force, hand-to-hand, and multiple weapons use capabilities, which would be interesting to know some of those other officers involved in the indictment, what their capabilities were. Did they have equal training? Probably. They probably went to some of the same classes he did. I mean, when we go to training, we send six to 12 guys for one course, and then we come back, we go to our regular days working, and the other class goes on their days off to the training, and everybody gets their training. So that would explain the computer being pulled up the way it was. It would explain the gunshot wound to the head being in the position and direction it was. And some of the other interesting things that I found reading through this stuff was that he had the imprints on his hand where when you press against asphalt and rock, you get those imprints Mm -hmm. and some of the rocks were still stuck to his hands, which means Mm -hmm. he was probably on the ground scuffling with suspect number one when suspect number two approached. And that's why there's the one gunshot. That's why the backup weapon was pulled because they were in a fight for life scenario with this other person on the ground. They would also explain the dirt on his uniform, the scuff marks on the backs of his hands. I mean, you're rolling around on the ground with somebody. And personally, like my, all my equipment is like super Velcroed to me. Like it ain't going nowhere, but you start rolling around on the ground with somebody, you're bound to lose a set of handcuffs, a flashlight. Sometimes even your radio will bounce out, you know, things come off of you. And that would, I mean, it just, it really, to me, looks like he got into it with somebody that at first he didn't recognize, then knew who they were, and person number two comes out of nowhere, and they best him right there in the alley, and that's the end of Sergeant Drenn's life. And this is exactly why I wanted you to to do this episode, man, because that right there is the insight that we get that we have the advantage of by having you on because I mean, my, my theory was kind of the same. It wasn't as detailed, but it's, you know, it's gotta be more than one person. You know, obviously you have to formulate some kind of motive. And I think the indictment as opposed to a motive for suicide, I think that's more of a motive for murder than it is for that. Because like you had said over a thousand dollars, you know, that's felony. That's, You know, people are going to prison for that. People are losing their jobs. But at the same time, more than one person got the drop on this guy. And I think one of them was somebody that he knew and somebody who had some kind of training. I can't speak for, you know, both of them being that type of, you know, both of them having that kind of training. But at least one of those people knew what they were doing because, the the whole computer having the suspect entry or whatever would be on the laptop, you know, either he was getting ready to enter something after coming across somebody and he was surprised by somebody else or somebody straight up sat in that passenger seat, you know, probably let's say he sits in the passenger, he or she sits in the passenger seat, you know, puts their, their left boot in 
you know, just their left boot. That's why I wanted to know the same. I had the same questions about that boot print that you did. It's like, was it the left foot? Was it the right foot? You know, was it the full print? Was the dude sitting half in the car, you know, and then just deleted that information of a suspect in there? You know what I mean? That, And there's no way yeah, for those that- computers to, to, to say whether or not something was entered and then deleted before it was actually like reported. There's nothing in the computers that can do that, right? Not that I know of. Like if, okay. if I start to type something and then I mm-hmm. backspace it, it's gone. Yeah, it's Until not like I a Google that. Doc. Like Google Docs, it'll yeah. sit there and save everything one freaking letter and comma at a time. It wouldn't be like that, right? No, 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 no. And the way they work is you start punching in the information, and the information will stay in there until you either enter it and it actually goes into the system completely, or you delete it, cancel out of it, whatever. Then it just disappears. But it doesn't, when you start typing the next time, doesn't pull up like Google and say, oh, so-and-so was in there. You know what I mean? It doesn't, there's no memory in that information screen that does that. So unless you fill it out and hit the enter button, nobody knows what was on that screen. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And I don't know exactly which program system they're running down there, but my experience is all the systems are relatively the same. So it would be highly improbable that it would have that kind of Google based memory system. Totally understandable. Yeah. Not billionaires. Like we said, grossly underpaid civil servants, man, you know, you know, they don't, a lot of them don't get very good funding or whatever either. So, you know, it's not just on you guys, but I don't know, man, that just brings up like, Dash cam, you know, what's up with that? Like I was under the assumption that almost all law enforcement vehicles were equipped with some kind of like dash cam or, or something of that nature. Like, am I, am I false in believing that? Not entirely. However, a lot of the dash cams don't activate unless you cue them up or they turn on with your lights and sirens. So we, in our department, we actually don't run dash cams at all. Um, budgetary problem, right? <laughs> we we run the Axon body cameras that are okay. mounted, you know, on either on our chest or duty belt or whatever, and we turn them on. Now, Highway Patrol here, they have, like, all the cool stuff, and they have the dash cams. <laughs> with the audio recordings they have the body cameras they have the fancy uh we call them mdcs it's a mobile something computer the cameras activate when you turn your lights on or you hit the like override on your mdc and turn it on manually so like if you're you pull up you're not you're not running any lights or anything like that but you're going to be out talking to somebody and you want every camera possible to protect yourself. So you turn it on when you get out. And I don't know in 2010 if Phoenix was even running any kind of cameras in their vehicles. There was this whole thing with the body worn cameras that just recently passed and they made it mandatory that departments started 
using body cameras because for years, a lot of agencies just use the dash cams with the little audio thing on their uniform. So when they were at the vehicle talking to the person, they had the camera angle from back there on the patrol vehicle, but they had the audio from up there at the driver's window where the officer would be making contact, right? Which, unfortunately, I wasn't able to get any of that information from anybody in Phoenix that I know. So can't can't clarify any of that for the podcast, but it would, <laughs> it would be nice to know what their equipment status was like in 2010. And then if they had that stuff, what happened to the videos? Were there any videos? Like I said, did he get out seeing somebody he didn't recognize? And then he didn't worry about turning it on because he's like, oh, it's so-and-so. I know this yeah. guy. Even if that person wasn't a law enforcement officer, maybe he did recognize them through a mutual friend at work. And then, you know, that's where my theory of second person hiding in the bushes is what got the jump on him. Everything indicates there was some kind of scuffle on the ground. Even the wild round being shot off into the fence. Like, that's totally plausible. You're in the you're on the ground in a fight with some dude, you pull your gun, all they gotta do is wrist lock your hand or you know, they put their hand on the gun and they just keep the barrel pointed away from them and you're trying to wrestle with them and the shot goes off. You might only get one. What was the condition of his service weapon after they found it? Did it have mm-hmm. a jam? Was the empty casing still in the receiver? You know what I mean? And that's but, another thing, too. Yeah. I never heard anything about the empty casing, you know, if it was from a service pistol. Because like we had mentioned earlier, there's two different reports on which pistol it was. about a, uh, a dash cam, but I was super curious about it. So I'm glad that you did bring some clarification on that. To clarify on the whole service pistol thing and the, and the casing, right? So I can tell you right now that his Glock is the same standard issue one that I carry. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's 45 caliber too. And that's what I carry, 45 caliber Glock. Sounds totally sketchy, but it's 100% legit if you hold the slide down with enough grip strength from your hand and fire a round there's no recoil and there's no reloading of the next round there's no ejection of the spent casing it's actually a malfunction type and some lower quality ammunition will actually do it on its own where it doesn't cycle with enough pressure to recoil and reload the next round so you can actually stop it literally you put the palm of your hand on the back of the slide fire around and the slide will not chamber the next round and the empty casing will stay in the slide that is really interesting this was also another pet peeve let's let's go back to when we were talking about the officers on scene Mm -hmm. right and there was the investigator that said oh it's suicide and he leaves to go do some press release or yeah. speak at some convention or something well, like Contre- that. Right? And Contreras, too, posted on Facebook. His family was even notified. Yeah. That's 
fishy in itself. Yeah. But if somebody on the department that was on scene, the one person that keeps revolving around this door. Mm-hmm. Um, so if he was there and he texts Contreras like, hey, man, Brent was killed, you know. Contreras to go and put it on Facebook before the family's notified. That's just messed up, man. That's pretty wrong, That's, dude. That's you were in this industry long enough, you know better. Yeah. Right? So shame on him for doing that. Where I was going with that was you got all these guys on the scene from Phoenix PD. <clears throat> Why did Maricopa County not take up this investigation? One of Phoenix PD's investigators is like, yep, suicide, I'm going to go to my press release, whatever thing, and you two guys just take care, wrap all this up. The other investigator's like, this, this dude was murdered, right? So you've got two investigators from the department that are already contradicting each other right from the start. And then us, personally, uh, if we have an officer-involved shooting or anything like that, it's being investigated either by the state or the local police department depending on where it happened or whatever like it wouldn't be internal right no yeah you're gonna have an outside source come in this would not be an internal in-house investigation i mean your officer's dead you already have a shady reputation uh, as a corrupt and unjust department so to speak why are you doing the investigation if I was on scene, I'd have been like, Arizona Highway Patrol, get your butt over here. We had an officer kill. Yep. I need your whole entire freaking crime scene unit, yeah. right? Make make the call out. If I was the chief, I would have I would have written people up for the freaking disastrous footprints all over the scene. I mean, heads would have rolled for this. You're not you're not going to disgrace one of our fellow officers, even if it was a legitimate suicide. Like I, I've read some of the theories from the medical examiner in Phoenix. And I'm like, dude, dude, like you're just, no. And I granted the medical examiner's Maricopa County, which is the County seat mm-hmm. for, or, you know, the County agency, but Phoenix is the seat of the County. So still I would have had Maricopa, or Arizona State Police investigating this and not my own internal, which my investigators would have been right there lending the hand, doing whatever they needed to do. But I would have had an outside agency mm-hmm. from start to finish, will secure the scene, not touch anything, get them over here. Everybody that was on scene, documented DNA, footprints, the whole nine yards, securely and as professionally exhaust every means and resource available to us because we now have a fallen officer to see that Phoenix did their own investigation and then left it as undetermined still. Yeah. I mean, yeah, come on. The medical examiner determined it as suicide for Maricopa County. Yes. So with the agency still investigating, it's technically it's an open case. Mm-hmm. So with them ruling it as undetermined and it's still an open case, she may not have been paid at all yet. Like there's still that possibility that they're withholding until they have a final determination, which 
again, another reason, I don't think Sean would have put his family in this type of predicament. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And like you had uh, mentioned previously earlier on about the interviews with his wife and and his mother and stuff like that, uh, you know, just watching them and and listening to them talk about about Sergeant Drenth, it's it's just I don't you know, mental mental illness aside, I, I do understand that people can act normal and happy and be absolutely you know crushed by depression in their own mind but you know outwardly being the same person you know they are every day i i I do get that but i just don't see it with with this case i really really don't man there's just too many weird things that don't add up that point to outside involvement in his death as opposed to him being involved that's the struggle so you're gonna literally tell me that this guy rolled around on the ground before he killed himself i mean he he just decided to roll around on the ground open his passenger door passenger side door put his boot print in in the door just you know on the floorboard for absolutely no reason whatsoever and then he's gonna take his hand and punch something you know because his knuckles were bruised and scraped up He's going to pull out, pull out all his service pistols, you know, or both his service pistols. He's going to throw one over a fence. In what scenario does that make sense? You know, it just exactly it doesn't make sense. And I mean, I can understand no, it, the the suicide made to look like a murder in order for her to get those benefits. Like, I do understand that. But at the same time, you have a witness on the scene that straight up says, you know, I heard a bit a loud blast first and 15 seconds later I heard a muffled blast. And I'm sorry but you know shotgun compared and don't get me wrong 45s are loud, you know. And depending on his his other, you know, ankle pistol, you know, depending on what that was probably I would assume, you know, maybe a 380 I think I read or 380. Yeah. Okay. I, I could I, I could I see read, a 380. I read 380. Even a little snub nose 38. You know, I've seen cops carry those on their ankles all day. You know, I, I know guys at work that do, you know, a little gut buster. But at the same time, like a shotgun blast, dude, a shotgun compared to a, uh, you know, a 45 or even a 380. Well, wouldn't you think that it would be a louder blast? Depending on the shotgun, I suppose you could say. But so on that on that note, depending on where the homeless person was at that pistol is going to echo off those buildings. Oh, for sure. It sounds a little bit louder than it actually was. Right. So you got that metal Mm -hmm. fence. So you're going to get that weird pingy echo off that metal fence, but that shotgun at point blank, is going to be muffled. You got a great point because I mean, we're not, we're not talking about just going into something we're talking about like this thing was point blank to his chin and came out the top of his skull in this weird mm-hmm. angle. There's a weird trajectory there, but if you got a contact, it means all the gases and everything are going through his skull and his brain matter before exiting. So it'd be like stuffing a pillow on the end of your pistol and shooting it. It's going to be muffled. 
and I wanted to test the theory, right? I wanted to like, go find a pig skull and uh, shoot a pig skull with it at point blank because I actually, <laughs> I carry a very similar shotgun. Mine's Mossberg's 590A1, and I think mm-hmm. his was the Remington 870. But still, it's, you know, they're the same. Mine's got the same overall length. I think it was, what, 20? Without any special permits or anything like that, you can go in and get an 18-inch home defense. His 870 was built like a home defense gun, so I'm assuming it has an 18-inch barrel. I mean, my department-issued one has an 18-inch barrel on it. I'd have a shorter one, but my department doesn't want to pay the extra for the 12-inch barrel. So, (laughs) you know. Funding, man, budgets, you know. It is. Now, it, now it really is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's well, it's like two hundred dollars more per gun for the shorter barrel, and I'm like, you think these big, large manufacturers would cut government agencies a little bit of a break? Like, it's less yeah. material. It costs less. But you no. would think. But anyway, do you think that's like why Lentz initially checked the trunk? To why? Why do you think he did that? Because it says he he took out, you know, he turned off the car, took out the keys, and checked the trunk. Yeah. Why would he check the trunk? I don't don't know what he's looking for, right? I mean, I don't know how their setup is in the Crown Vicks or how their agencies set things up. I did read somewhere that because Sergeant Drenth was a shift supervisor and a sergeant, he was Mm -hmm. allowed to carry his personal shotgun and... Looking at all the photos of it, that thing is a tactical shotgun. Mm-hmm. It's not grandpa's, let's go shoot some birds. And if the department issues a shotgun and some kind of rifle, they're probably both locked in the gun rack because, like most patrol vehicles, they have two gun racks, one for a shotgun and one for a long gun of some sort, depending mm-hmm. Assault rifle. Yeah, you know, either some kind of like AR style rifle or an actual mm-hmm. like bolt action long gun because some departments, their snipers, SWAT team guys will carry a shotgun and a long gun because somebody else is going to show up with a shotgun and an AR. So they've got their sniper type rifle, you know, but I don't know a lot about Phoenix policy and procedure, so I can't stand here and tell you one way or the other, but theoretically he's already got two guns in his car because they're department cars. I don't think they actually get take home rides there. I think they rotate like the supervisors rotate supervisor cars and the patrol guys, you know, if they come in from their shift, they drop off their car. Somebody goes out, checks it over for service or whatever gas it may need. And then somebody else comes in and checks it out. So the guns stay in the car. So the supervisors get to carry their own, personal weapon that's that's what i'm thinking this type of scenario is because he why else would he have his personal shotgun like hey this is mine it's built for me it's set up the way i want it set up i mean he had all kinds of he had ammunition on the other side of the receiver and on the buttstock for extra rounds and he had that it looked like a surefire tactical flashlight on the foregrip like just not your standard issue stuff but Again, I read that they allowed the supervisors to carry their own personal firearms instead of department-issued ones. So 
that was the explain the shotgun just sitting in the passenger seat chilling and that would explain why the passenger door may have been open to get okay. the shotgun out yeah and yeah. even if they had to get in push some buttons to release it from a, a gun rack that's why okay. i think it was someone with equal training they knew how to get in his car and get his gun out is there any kind of electronics hooked up through the trunk that are that is accessible through the trunk yeah, there's a, actually, well, I mean, mine's all in my, under my back seat because I drive a pickup, but most of the Crown Vicks and the Ford Explorers and the Chevy Tahoes, like that trunk space where, like, right up against the back seat, there would be, like, your brain for your all your lights and sirens. There would be, like, the base station for your radio equipment, like, that's set up back there because they're usually bigger. When I say bigger, I mean like anywhere from a car battery size to suitcase size. And basically it just controls all the functions and even the power inverter, all that stuff to run the laptop and everything. Because um, they're not, they don't run on 12 volt electrical. They run on 120 AC. So you got to have a power inverter of some sort. So all that, all okay. that electronic stuff would be stowed either in the trunk or in the spare tire compartment area of the the vehicle so that it's not in the back seat with the arrestees that you may have and it's not up front crowding your space up there. But I just for Lynch to go to the trunk, man, that's just what was he looking for? I don't know, man. <laughs> I'm Did trying to eliminate reasons. On the ground? Exactly, dude. That's what I'm saying. Like if he walked up and saw, you know, the the shotgun across his body and Beside the fact that you have two different reports, you know, Lentz and uh, Swick, I believe his name was, was totally different than Clark's initial report of how the the shotgun was positioned. I guess I was trying to eliminate reasoning or, or certain reasons for him to check the trunk. And it's like, what what is he doing? What's he looking for in there, you know? Yeah, I mean... I don't know. Maybe he was looking to see if Drent pulled something out of it before taking off. Yeah. You know, maybe he thought maybe he thought Drent went out on some kind of foot pursuit and he mm. grabbed something out of the trunk. I, I don't know, but if it was me showing up, I'm one of the first ones on scene, I wouldn't have touched nothing. Oh, I'd have walked up. I'd have verified that my fellow officer was beyond any type of medical help. And that would have been it. And exactly. And why would the first thing that he does, it's and it admittedly is turn off the car, take out the keys, and check the computer, and then check the trunk. Why? Why is? Do you think there's any? I don't know. Good reason. And just so we're all clear, we're not accusing anybody of anything. I'm just trying to. We're trying to understand reasoning for this. You know, but. What what would a good reason be that literally your you, you know your buddy is is dead on the scene from an apparent you know at, at first glance is possible suicide? Why are you why are you looking at the computer? What are you looking for? You know, does that make sense to you either? No, no, and okay. that you know maybe which I'm not I'm not making any accusations, but maybe Lentz walked up. And they just thought that was the right thing to do at that time. It, you know? it could be. I mean, yeah. 
if he had already seen Sergeant Drenth laying on the ground, I could kind of understand maybe shutting the car off because you need the key to open the trunk. Some of those older Crown Vicks, the push button gets disabled because of where they put all the radio equipment in at. So the trunk release button sometimes gets disabled or maybe they take it out altogether. Maybe it didn't have one because it's an older one and it doesn't have an electronic release. So he takes yeah. the key to open the trunk. Maybe he's yeah. looking for a medical bag. Uh, you know what? That's I mean, a very good possibility as well. Theoretically, I could see him okay. taking the keys to go to the trunk to look for a medical bag. But I'm not no dummy. If I see brain matter, I'm not going to try yeah. and administer any medical at that point. I'm going to secure the scene as best I can, even though it's extremely upsetting. And I know that in a situation like that, without proper training and reiteration of training, you're going to make mistakes. But mm -hmm. still, you walk up, it's clear there's no nothing you can do that's going to bring them back, then you just yeah. stop. You don't yeah. do anything else, especially when it's a, a fellow officer. Like, yeah, and a friend. And, and I guess that's where I could kind of understand emotions taking over because of the personal relationship as opposed to it oh, being, yeah. you know, I'm not saying it would be any less heartbreaking seeing a fellow officer that you didn't know personally, you know, in that situation. But I mean, I, I, I guess I can understand, you know, being emotional and your in, you know, your mind not hitting the protocol. Right. You know, cause at that point it's like, you're not, you might not be seeing this guy as a, as a fellow cop or a cop at all. It's like, that's my friend right there, you know? So I get, I guess I can, I can understand that aspect of it, but you know, overall, there's still a lot of weird unanswered questions with this with this case, man. Yeah, absolutely. There is a lot, and I would love to pull their files and review the case from law enforcement <laughs> perspective, like sit down and review all of the notes and all of the officer statements. And I'm sure there would be some insight there. But, you know, to go back to my theory on this, I think that this was partially an inside job to silence him. And yeah, I agree. I think higher-ups in the department may or may not have had some information. I mean, let's face it. Phoenix has a crappy reputation for a department, man. Oh, they're absolutely like, horrible reputation, man. <laughs> one, horrible. Of, one of the worst. Yeah, which, which is, yeah. I, I, I'm really glad I didn't go down there and go to work for them back when the opportunity presented itself. Because I'm, I'm glad you didn't. Either. All the things I've heard, <laughs> <laughs> all the things I've heard since then, I'm just like, woo! I, I saved the, saved myself on that one. Yeah, yeah, man. Yeah, you definitely made the right choice there. <laughs> all right. Well, I suppose with that, man, I'd really just I can't even thank you enough for taking the time to go over this case with me. And like I said, a hundred times during the episode, your insights to this particular case is so much more beneficial than just a random person like myself. So 
again, man. I cannot even thank you enough, dude. Ah, uh, Justin, it was my pleasure, man. Anytime, just reach out to me. All right, man, because, you know, I actually uh, <laughs> I actually have another unsolved cop case, if you're interested in it. So this one's out of uh, California, I believe. So I don't know. Might find some interest. There's a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, maybe a love triangle and shit going on with this one. It's pretty interesting. Uh, well, you know, I, I do have some family <laughs> ties in California, so... Uh... Well, all right. Let me know. You got all my information, so. Oh yeah, man. I'll send you the link right when we get off this call and take a breather, man. Hey, I hope you have a good Thanksgiving too next week with the family and stuff. Yeah, you too. Yeah, I appreciate that, man. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> it's always a pleasure talking to you. You know, you're welcome back anytime. Yeah. I still get messages about that the the AMA we did. They're like, man, I love hey. that. Like the guy answered every question as honest as he could, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I was like, well, yeah. If, if, uh, if you want to do another one of those, I, uh, I can definitely, we'll have, we'll have me again and, uh, I'll have officer Y for you next time. So get him out here too. So he deals, he deals with some crazier things than I do. So. Hey, It'll you be, know what? Uh, I'm all, I love hearing them kinds of stories. Yeah. <laughs> all right man well you have a good night tell the wife i said hi i'll let her know that you did a great job again so <laughs> <laughs> all right well thanks man all right dude i'll talk to you later all right justin we'll see you <laughs> good night <laughs>